Let's turn back together to our reading in Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at some of these verses together this evening. Uh, We're going to look at really verse 1 to 7, but we'll read verse 8 just now, which tells us of everything that's come before it. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then verse 1 to 7, as we have them before us this evening, we want to see what he is talking about as trustworthy, what we can hold on to as a people, what we can put our trust in. Constantly we are bombarded by items of paper, it might be, coming through our letterbox. There's certainly a lot starting just now, telling us of all the promises that may be on offer in a political sense. In our newspapers, on our television screens, we're constantly seeing adverts and people speaking to us about this, that, and the next thing that's going to make such a huge difference in our lives. We hear promises, 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 promises of a better and brighter future, promises of change, promises of products or foods that will be life-changing for us. But how many of these promises actually come true? How many of these promises do we think to ourselves, well, there's something that we can rely on? We just have to look back in our life experience and think, well, all the promises that we've been offered that haven't come to pass. They haven't been fulfilled. And even if there have been promises recently made, we ask the question, will they be fulfilled in the future at any time? There are so many things that leave us with a sense of uncertainty. No guarantee of any change or the promise being kept. And we might say to ourselves, wouldn't it be wonderful to have somewhere to go or someone to come to us and give us a promise that we can rely on? Something that we can take hold of that is secure in the past, in the present, and in the future. Well, that is what Paul is writing to Titus about. As he is writing to encourage him, as Titus seeks to encourage others, he's writing to him, reminding him of the God that he knows, and reminding him of all that the Lord has done, is doing, and will do. And what is it that is at the heart of his message? What is it that's the core of what he is saying to him? Well, is it about the salvation and the security that is found in Jesus Christ. That is the greatest security that he can know. And so he's telling him that you have this message, you have this God, you have this Lord, you can lean upon him, you can rely on him, and you can share him with others. And that's the message that we ourselves have and hear today that we hear from him, from God's word. It's a message of promise, a message of security, a message of salvation. But we ask ourselves, but how do we convince others? Or perhaps even how do we convince ourselves in this message? How do we lean upon it and rely on it in all its promises? 
Well, it's to remember and to be confident in what we have in Christ and what we are in Christ. Are you convinced that this is true? Are you convinced of the security that this message gives to us? How many of you had potatoes for dinner today? I'm sure if it wasn't today, at some point in the last week, you've had potatoes. Potatoes with your salt herring, potatoes with your guga, potatoes with whatever. It goes with everything. We're so accustomed to having potatoes almost every day in some cases. But it wasn't always the case that potatoes was popular. It may be hard to believe, but when the potato first came to our nation, it was rejected. It wasn't a popular food at all. When it was first introduced, royalty and the rich mocked it. The potato was just for the poor or for animals. It said that even ministers preached sermons against the potato. The general public wouldn't touch it. And it was said that if you planted it in the ground, it caused harm and illness and even death to people. And yet you look around us today and we're surrounded by potatoes every day. Well, how did it become so popular? What changed? Well, there were a few who believed in it and believed that the potato could help our nation, and especially in times uh, when food was scarce, that it was something that could be of great use and benefit to our land. And now we see it so popular. Well, when we think of ourselves in the situation of having the gospel, the gospel is something, too, that in many cases is unpopular. That is something that is seen by many that causes more harm than good. But we are to hold true to a different reality that the gospel teaches. That is not a gospel of evil or harm to anyone, but that is a gospel of good for a people, a gospel of good to all who will hear it. It's a life-changing gospel, a life-changing promise. It's what we need to hold on to. And Titus chapter 3 here has a message uh, for Titus and for ourselves as well as to how we can hold on uh, to the promises of the gospel and how we can hold on to them in a way that reminds us of the great blessings that are ours in Christ. The great blessings that we all need, whether we are truly believing and trusting in the Lord, whether we are seeking the Lord, whether we are blind to the Lord, the Word of God is what we need. It is a life-changing promise for us all. And it reminds us here, as Paul is writing to Titus, I want to take three things that he reminds Titus of here. Three things that we could take for ourselves as well. Three things to remember. And you see it really from verse 3 through to verse 7. And the three things are this. He reminds Titus what we were. And then he reminds him what we are. And then he reminds them what we will be. And this is the promise of the gospel that is able to change our lives. What we were, what we are, 
and what we will be. So first of all, we see what we were. One of the biggest problems that people face as they make their way through life is that they forget where they came from. We can see it and we can maybe look especially in, in the world of fame and fortune as it were. When you look in the world of politics, sport and the celebrity culture, it's full of a people who have come maybe from very poor backgrounds or poor upbringings and yet they've made it as it were in the world. But how many of them remember where they came from? How many remember what they once were? It's so easy to forget. But that's also true for every one of us. It's easy for ourselves to forget what we were. Especially when we think of the Lord working in our lives. It's easy for us, and maybe some of us just want to forget what we once were. We prefer what we are now, but we must never forget what we once were. Because that reminds us of how thankful we should be to the Lord. And we see it here as Paul is writing and encouraging Titus in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What a powerful reminder Paul gives to Titus there. What we once were. He's reminding Titus, he's reminding every Christian, that if you're going to be a witness for the Lord, you have to remember what he's taking you from what you once were. And Paul often does that as he's writing his letters. He, he reminds people of what they once were. In, for example, in writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians, he says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. And he's constantly reminding them of this. But he's never excluding himself. I mean, if you look at verse 3 here, he doesn't say you were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and so on. He says we. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. He doesn't exclude himself. He knows his own past. And he always remembers that. Because it reminds him more and more of the wonder of the grace of God. If we forget what we were, then we're not truly able to tell others what we are and what our hope is. I would love to stand up here this evening and say to you all, I was once good and I did everything right. But unfortunately, most of you know me only too well. You know my past, just like I know many of your pasts as well. But we thank God that we, we have a past. And that as we look to our past, by God's grace, we can maybe see the goodness of his grace. It's easy to become angry and impatient with unbelievers. 
who act in these very ways, foolishness, disobedient, led astray. But God's grace gives us patience when we remember, that was me, that was you. So he never forgets what he was. And he reminds Titus and others here of what they themselves were as well. Before we met Christ, before we knew Christ, it was all about self. But now, by God's grace, we are transformed and able to see him in all his glory. Verse 3 is so important here because Paul knows that in order for us to act in love and good deeds towards others, we must never forget what we once were. And all the time that we see this past, what we once were, we ourselves, with all of these things, what does it bring us to? It reminds us that apart from Christ, we would still be that way. And when you think of the message of the gospel we read throughout the Old and the New Testament, it reminds us so much of the grace and love of God. And you can go back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, passage maybe many of us know so well as well. Doesn't it remind us of what was necessary to deal with all this wickedness in our hearts, our foolishness, our disobedience, our being led astray? What was necessary? What was necessary was for God to send his son. And even in Isaiah, before the Lord came, he's he's shown there in how Isaiah says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's a powerful reminder of what we were. Perhaps tonight what some of us are. All like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned to our own way. But what we can remember in that is that God is still good. And God is still able. So we must never forget what we once were. But the second thing we see here is what we are by the grace of God. What changed us and what is able to change others that we see and witness to around us? What is able to change you this evening if if you are without Christ tonight? Well, you come to a word in verse 4. A small word, but a small word that changes everything. What is that word? Well, it's the first word you see there in verse 4 before you. But. But is what changes everything here. What you once were, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And again, it's so similar to what he says in Ephesians when he's talking about being 
dead in our trespasses and sins. What does he say there? Paul, as he's writing, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy. That small word makes all the difference. And it always comes from God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God. So you see, it's not the difference that we make in ourselves. It's not the changes that we can bring about. But the change that God can and has done for many of us by his grace. We can say that it is by grace we have been saved. It is because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It wasn't our goodness, but his goodness, his loving kindness. Not because of, as it says in verse 5, of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's all of God's grace. And when you look at promises made by others around us, when you think of politicians and the promises they make, well, when are these promises realized? Only if what they promise is done. Only if what they promise is achieved. And so often it's not. And the promise is broken. But what about the goodness of God? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, he says here, when was this? When was it begun? When was it realised? Was it only when Jesus Christ came into the world that this became a reality? No, it was from the very beginning. When the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, it was there already, but then appeared to us. You can go through the Old Testament and you see the goodness of God. You see the goodness and loving kindness he showed towards the children of Israel in Egypt. How he brought them out of slavery and bondage. You see the goodness and loving kindness of God, how he led, led, led them through the Red Sea. You see the goodness uh, of God as he protected Daniel in so many different circumstances. You can see the goodness of God towards David in many of his own life's experience, goodness and loving kindness of God. But for us, it has appeared. It has come to us. The goodness and loving kindness of God has appeared to us in the Son of God, Christ Jesus. And what we are now is through what he has done, that Christ died on the cross. It appeared. He appeared. And the promise is secure in Christ. Paul, in writing to the Romans, uh, reminds us there in chapter 5, verse 7, of the goodness and loving kindness of God. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us 
in that we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was nothing of ourselves. What is the explanation of this love? From our perspective, there's no explaining it. We cannot describe it. We cannot explain it. Why does God love lost sinners like he does? Why does he come to save us from our sins? He doesn't come because we deserve it or we've earned it. He does not save us because he knows that we will become great servants of him or that he'll be able to use us. It is because of his mercy. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Mercy is kindness. It is good towards the broken and afflicted, as one describes it, along with a desire to relieve them, to help them. That is God's mercy. That is God's mercy shown to his people. God's love and mercy towards us that we were once when we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, when we were sinners before God, Christ died for our sins. He showed us mercy. He showed us mercy through Christ Jesus. What a wonderful God we have. Poured out on us in verse 6, it says, richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That is what we are now through him. That is what we can experience through him. What a wonderful promise there is for us all there that we can know that salvation and that we don't have to earn it or work for it ourselves, but just to come and plead for the mercy of God. What we are, we are saved if we believe in him. The third and final thing we can take from this passage is what we will be. And we see that in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The transformation, if you like, is complete. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. We were dead in our sins. By God's mercy, we are saved. And then through being justified by his grace, we are heirs according to the hope of not just life, new life now, but eternal life. A security and a hope that is never ending. Heirs and promise, that's what we are to this promise. That is what we are now and what will be ours for eternity. This is a trustworthy saying, he says. This is something you can rely on. But do you believe it? Do you believe that God is able to change people's lives? Yes, I'm sure you do, because you've seen it. Do you believe he is able to save you? I hope you do, that the gospel is real and that you're able to believe it. 
And do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the hope of eternal life? Well, he's saying this is something that is trustworthy and true. And again, it has all its foundation in Christ. Do you believe it? That's the question that Jesus asked of another when he was meeting with Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus. He asked one of them, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And the question was, do you believe this? Do you see this as trustworthy and true? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But do you believe it? Do you believe in what we will be one day? Justified in him by his grace. Heirs to this hope of eternal life that will be fulfilled one day. What a glorious hope the Christian has. What a glorious hope for all who have been brought from darkness into light. That there is that hope. Of eternal life. It's amazing how the Bible describes what that means for the believer. There's a number of passages you could go to, but there's just four quickly I could pick out that remind us of what we will be or what we will have. Revelation 21, verse 9 through to verse 22 speaks of a place, a glorious place, more beautiful than any mind can conceive, a place rich with the Lamb in the center of it, a place of glory, a place of healing, a place of renewal. Revelation puts it so beautifully. In Philippians 1, verse 23, Paul himself speaks of a place far better, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It is better. Revelation again, and when you go back to Isaiah, the two tied together. It's a place free from pains and sorrows, sufferings and tears that mar this life that we have just now. John 14, verse 1 to 3, reminds us of a place that the Lord is preparing for his people, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And so he goes on describing this place that he is preparing for his people. There are wonderful promises in Scripture for us to realize the hope that what we are heirs to according to the hope of eternal life by his grace. And that is what we are to hold on to. That we can have life just now, life transformed by the promise of God to his people. That he is able to save us from our sins. That he is able to save us by his mercy. That he is able to give us that grace that we might become heirs to eternal life. What do we need for this? How do we find this for ourselves? Well, we know where it is. 
It is in Christ. But how are we trying to achieve it? Are we trying to do it by ourselves? Or are we leaving it in the hands of God, entrusting ourselves to him? We're familiar around ourselves here uh, with mills, the tweed mills around us. There was a story told of a textile mill on the mainland going back many years. And there was a sign up on the wall in the mill. And it said, when your thread becomes tangled, call the foreman. A young woman had started work and she was working uh, in the department where this sign was hanging. She was working uh, on the thread there. And she was working away this day and her thread started becoming all tangled up. And so she thought to herself, I'll get this right. I'll sort this out myself. I'm new here. I don't want to show any weakness. I'll sort it out myself. And she tried. And what happened was the situation just got worse. And finally she gave in and she called the foreman. Called him over and said, I did my best. And his response to her was, no, you didn't. To do your best, you should have called me. And if that's our attitude in life, we think we're going to sort things out ourselves. All the tangles of our lives, if we think we can fix it all ourselves, we can just do our best and say to God on that day when he comes, Lord, I tried my best. That's not what he asks of us. What he asks is to call on him. To call on him. Not because of works done by us in righteousness are we saved but according to his own mercy that's what we plead and that's the greatest promise that we have that is secure in Christ that when we call on him he will hold us secure now and for all eternity we all have a past we don't forget where we come from. We all have a present where we see where we are now. And by God's grace, we can know that power. And by God's grace, we can have a glorious future with the hope of eternal life to be heirs to that promise of eternal life. How? Not through ourselves, but by pleading for his mercy. Mercy for ourselves and mercy for all around us, that he would be merciful to us as we call on his name. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for even the smallest words that we find in scripture that can make all the difference for us. And we think even of that small word, but, and how often we see it makes all the difference for us, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. And even as we have it before us this evening, when we were ourselves were once foolish and disobedient in so many ways, 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who is able to transform us, reminding us of our past, showing us our present, but also giving us the hope of a future. We pray, Lord, to know your mercy in all of these things, as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.